to visit the church. Are there people that don't hate that? Red rum! Red rum! (laughs) (laughs) Welcome to Up Yours Downstairs, the podcast that has won Best Bloom in the Village seven years running. I'm Kelly Anakin. And I'm Tom Schneider. We are married. And thank goodness our wedding happened before word got out that I wasn't virtuous. We both really dodged a bullet there. <laughs> uh, as far as telegrams from our cousins go, we are still waiting on a winner for our Masterpiece Classic Credits Trivia Contest, if you'd still like to enter. But actually, this week, we're giving Olivia the title of Cousin of the Week. Yes, Olivia went above and beyond by identifying every member of the cast listed in the Downton Abbey main credits. People I didn't even realize were in the cast. <laughs> That's right. As well as listing their other appearances in Masterpiece Classic Productions. It's extremely thorough and very impressive. Yes. So we are going to be sure to post the list on our Facebook page as well as on our Tumblr. And congratulations, Olivia. You are the Up Yours Downstairs Cousin of the Week. Hooray. Way to go, Cousin Olivia. Yes. We're proud to be fake related to you. <laughs> yes. Uh, and we've also got listeners in nine new countries. Nine? Yes. They are Japan, Denmark, Saudi Arabia, Taiwan, India, Greece, and Kazakhstan. Wow. Welcome, all. Yes. Thank you for listening. We are proud. Yeah. It's very cool. We're up to 39 total countries now. Yeah. Uh, which makes us feel very uh, cosmopolitan. <laughs> yes. Uh, thanks to all of the cousins who are following us on Twitter, liking us on Facebook, and leaving such excellent iTunes reviews. Special thanks to cousin Mr. Voldemorton for promising that he will create Dubstep Abbey for us. Yes, indeed. And uh, cousin Mr. Voldemorton, if this happens in the next couple of weeks, we may be able to make Dubstep Abbey the Series 2 theme of Up Yours Downstairs. No pressure. <laughs> right. Also, we'd really like to say cousin Mr. Voldemorton. <laughs> so please continue to contact us. So we have an excuse to continue saying that yes please do uh, and remember if you're interested in contacting us you can contact us on twitter at five the number five maggie smiths or at up yours downstairs at gmail.com and we would just love to hear from all of you especially if you can identify the six celebrities in the masterpiece classic opening credits not the downton abbey opening credits for a shot at becoming cousin of the week which is a very exciting thing i've been told yes uh, yeah, and we also love recapping, so uh, That's right. let's get to it. Okay. We forgot to talk about Laura Linney last week. That's right, We yes. really dropped the ball. <laughs> yeah, because she was at her Laura Linneus. She really was egregious. <laughs> uh, we're, doing, we're doing two rounds of Laura Linney here, and she was just at her most punchable. <laughs> <laughs> right. She enraged us. I think it's fair to say. She discussed corsets a couple episodes late. We covered that (laughs) way back when. Right. But so she was talking about corsets and the bra and some other stuff. Uh, Then she started talking about, you know, dress etiquette and how Lord Grantham dresses for dinner like an orchestra conductor. And I'm like, you can't lay that on Lord Grantham. He is far from the only one. (laughs) Right. Uh, So she's talking about... uh, change yes. and how sometimes the engine of change doesn't roar it just quietly sneaks in and sits down for dinner which again first of all delivered with the patented laura linney smugness yeah 
the winkity wink wink wink. First of all, you didn't even write that line, Laura Linney. No, and she did not. Second of all, it makes no sense. It doesn't because clearly what she's describing is Sybil's harem pants right. that she wears into dinner. Uh, Sybil did not sneak in quietly. And sit down. She made a whole parade. Yeah. She invited the chauffeur <laughs> to creepily lurk outside and witness her flaunting of the status quo. Right. She strutted in and struck a pose. Like the peacock her outfit was clearly inspired by. <laughs> yeah. So shut up, Laura Linney. That was that one to me was the worst. Yeah, agreed. Uh to date was just the worst. Agreed. In the next one, she's talking about change and how change is the air we breathe in the twenty first century. And I'm like, I haven't changed my underwear in days. <laughs> right. You know what the air we breathe in the twenty first century is? Air. Smog. Yeah. <laughs> still still pretty much pretty similar. Yeah, pretty much good old oxygen. Maybe they don't have air inside the human heart. Perhaps not. Yeah. But uh she she starts blabbing that the idea of change the idea that things wouldn't stay the same was something new for the people of Downton Abbey, which I'm sorry. Yeah. If that was true, they would be living in Downton Cave, <laughs> wearing animal skins and clobbering each other with clubs. Like, right. I'm sorry. Yes. It's not as if all of human existence was exactly as we see it in Downton Abbey. <laughs> right. And then suddenly... Yeah. And I mean, nobody likes change, you know? Right. My parents don't like change. Mm-hmm. Your parent, nobody's parents like change. <laughs> right. Everybody's confused. And it's like, they all seem to have adjusted to the automobile pretty quickly. Yeah. Without too much complaint and electricity. Yeah. So anyway, this is a real fail for <laughs> right. Laura Linney. You've really, really outdone yourself. Yeah. So let's move on from Laura Linney to the, actual, to the actual show that we're all here. Yes, to that discuss. we know and love and give way more credit to than Laura Linney does, clearly. <laughs> yes. So we start off with Gwen, Anna, and Daisy. Uh, they're all preparing and airing out Lady Mary's room. Daisy drops her fireplace cleaning tools with a clatter. Mm-hmm. Uh, and I sprang from my bed to see what was the matter. <laughs> right. Well, Anna and Gwen did, at any rate. Um... <laughs> Uh, but she has a she has a flashback of Mr. Pamuk's lifeless body being carried out of Mary's room. Right. And Anna asks what is wrong, and Daisy refuses to say anything while clearly looking like something is really wrong. Yes. She always just looks like something is wrong in general. Yeah. That's what years with Mrs. Patmore <laughs> will get you. Um, uh, so then we head down to breakfast. Yum. <laughs> yes. Uh, they're all eating it, and Lord Grantham is... Reading a letter with a furrowed brow, Mary asks what's going on. It's uh, news from Aunt Rosamond. In uh, London. In London, yes. And apparently she's very wealthy and lives in a big old house all by herself in London. So uh, thanks for the exposition dump, sisters. <laughs> yes. Uh, although it did make me happy to see that Mary is back to being a bitch. Oh, yeah. The bitch is really back here. She's <laughs> left all of that, you know, depressive high school girl stuff behind, clearly. Right. She declares that, you know, she thinks that living in a big house all alone would be ideal. Yeah. Uh, and she can't wait for that to happen to her soon enough. <laughs> Lord Grantham snaps back, you know. That he wishes she wouldn't talk like that because sooner or later someone's going to think she means what she says. Yes. Which pretty much shuts Mary up. Not in like a I've given up way. Just like in a glowering <laughs> I'm going to kill you all kind of way. <laughs> right. Uh, and then Lord Grantham hands Sybil Spoiler. a letter. <laughs> <laughs> Red rum! Red rum! <laughs> 
So Sybil has been handed a letter by Lord Grantham, which she runs, finds Gwen, and informs her that she has set up another interview for Gwen for a secretary job. Gwen is surprised about that. Uh, she says, you know, because Gwen hadn't been told about it, of course she's surprised. She says she thought that uh, Sybil had given up on her. Guess what? Sybil never gives up. That's right. Ever. Yes. Well, and as she says, things are changing for women, mm-hmm. not just the vote, but their lives. It's it's true. It's exciting. Women will be able to have different subordinate positions to men than they used to be able yeah, to have. Yeah, it's pretty, woo! <laughs> yeah. Break out the bubbly. <laughs> yes. Then we cut to uh, mom badgering Matthew about going to see more churches with Edith. <laughs> yes. As Matthew is getting ready to go off to his job. I know, his scandalous job. Yes. Uh, but he says that Edith is barking up the wrong tree, <laughs> to which mom replies, poor Edith, I hope there's a right tree for her somewhere. Yes. Which is hilarious on at least seven <laughs> different levels. <laughs> right. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> is Edith a dog? Is this a, a thinly veiled double entendre? Like? <laughs> yes, I want to. I want to write a children's book called "A Tree for Edith." <laughs> uh, Mosley comes in and he wants to go down and help in the village hall because the flower show is next Saturday, the Downton Village Flower Show. Right, and uh, I imagine that's probably the last we'll hear about the flower show. Well, what is there to say about a flower yeah, show? There's some flowers. You show them. End of story. Yeah. Um, so back at Downton Abbey itself, Thomas. Big surprise is the uh, is the culprit behind the case of the missing wine. What? Yes, we're all stunned to find that Thomas has been stealing the wine, and Bates comes across him in in mid stealing. <laughs> um, Thomas does the old hide the wine bottle behind your leg thing, but Mister Bates can tell something's up. Yes. Yeah, Bates knows that Thomas is evil, <laughs> as do we all. McGee is sitting outside, as she says, trying to sort out the wretched flower show. <laughs> Clearly, this flower show is a bigger deal than I'd given it credit for. Right. Lord Grantham announces that he's had his letter from Rosamund, and McGee snarks that she probably wants food. Yes, a saddle of lamb. A saddle of lamb <laughs> and all the fruit and vegetables we can muster. <laughs> Which, seriously, what is wrong with your voice, Elizabeth McGovern? I, like, did somebody do something to your vocal cords? I, I don't know. <sighs> Anyway, yes, she does want food, it turns out. But more importantly, is reporting that in London, everyone thinks Mary's a bit of a slag. There's a rumor going around that Evelyn Napier no longer wants to marry her, and somehow this is reflecting badly upon Mary. Yeah. Uh, They both agree... Mary should get married. Again, Julian Fellows, (laughs) could you not have chosen a less awkward name for your primary heroine? And I'd like to point out, too, that uh, Rosamond is clearly earning her saddle of lamb because they're, you know, you may not be aware, but they're like across England from London. They're not close to London Mm -hmm. at all. They need somebody on the ground in London to be reporting back this news. So quit being a jerk, McGee. Send the lamb. <laughs> yeah. Lamb is delicious and nutritious. What? Are you running out of food at Downton Abbey that you can't throw some lamb her way? Doesn't look like it to me. Yeah. Anyway, McGee suggests that maybe Mary should get together with a dull old man named Anthony Strallen because <laughs> sluts need to get married much faster than virtuous women. Yes, it's true. Uh, he's, he's described as dull as paint. And at least as old as Lord Grantham. Right. So from what we know about Mary, she's just going to be dancing a jig <laughs> about potentially tying it out with this dude. Yes. This cannot possibly go wrong. Uh, then we head back downstairs. William is polishing some silver at the main table, which apparently is not supposed to, but he gets lonely by himself. Yeah. So <laughs> O'Brien's bitching about something. 
Uh, some lace that McGee likes yeah. and was put onto a shirt. This is a real riveting conversation <laughs> below stairs. <laughs> right. Finally, we get something going when uh, Anna asks Daisy in front of everybody if she's recovered from her bit of a turn. Mm-hmm. And uh, Mr. Basie's a sweet burn-in on Thomas because Daisy's worried that like the house is haunted. And O'Brien says, oh, it's haunted by the ghosts of maids and footmen who died in slavery. <laughs> and Mr. Bates says, well, but not of overwork in Thomas's case. Yes. Anyway, so Daisy realizes that she's like, done something stupid by like engaging this it's really anna's fault right. and really anna you're the accomplice <laughs> yeah like maybe you should just let everything go yeah J- your your response at any moment should be nothing suspicious there i certainly didn't help carry a dead turkish <laughs> diplomat out of my mistress's bedroom if that's what you're thinking <laughs> I didn't do it. Right. Uh, anyway, but Daisy harps back onto the Titanic and then follows it up stupidly by mentioning Mr. Pamuk and going on about how there's been all this death in the house. Right. And William sensibly asks, what does all that have to do with Lady Mary's bedroom? Mm-hmm. It's like, uh, from the mouths of morons. No, and I know. mean, honestly, because that's what really does it. Because Thomas and O'Brien wouldn't have picked up on it that she knew anything about Mr. Pamuk. Right. If William had not asked that. Yeah. And Daisy then with her, you know, terrible, terrible poker face <laughs> was all like, <laughs> Yeah. Also, also just a note in this scene, at some point during all this, a mystery servant comes in and just sits down in the background. Well, that so, person is clearly not important or interesting. Yeah. Uh, I don't think they are. I just wanted to point out that there are servants in the Abbey that don't get lines on the show. Mm-hmm. At the village hall, Molesley is helpfully tying up the banner, which reads Downton Village Flower Show. So I guess we know what's going on. (laughs) Right. And Mom is kind of annoyingly interrogating him (laughs) about who won the Grantham Cup for Best Bloom in the Village. And she mentions something about last year. So there wasn't a a timestamp, but I think we're to assume this is 1914. Yeah. So we're in spring of 1914. Yeah. But apparently... Best Bloom has gone to the Dowager Countess for years. Yes. And uh, then we meet Mr. Molesley, who is, uh, I still haven't forgiven him for the rue allergy he exposed <laughs> Molesley to a couple episodes back. Right. Uh, anyway, and so uh, Mom is all like badgering him while the Dowager Countess is right there. And he's like, what do you expect me to say? That yeah. I don't think it's fair? Well, and he's like, I, I, I think, you know, part of what we see about Mr. Molesley is that, you know, I don't know what it is that he does or did, but it's clear that he is not in a job where he interacts with the nobility. Yeah. You know, so he, he's like a very gruff dude. Right. You know, and he just doesn't really know how to act. I mean, he's in the same social class as Molesley, but Molesley is used to being around yeah. the upper class and knows how to deal with it. He just will just agree with what anybody says mm-hmm. so that he can stop having to deal with his superiors. Yeah, yeah, which, hey, I don't blame him. Yeah, yeah. Anyway, so we meet him and the Dowager Countess is being imperious as usual. But uh, we can see the meddling wheels in Mom's <laughs> head start to turn. Yes. Revolution at the flower show. <laughs> O'Brien finds Thomas brooding on a staircase and she asks if he's the one. Who's been spreading the gossip about Mary. And it turns out that, yeah, he did. It's, yeah. it's his fault that these rumors about Mary's virtue have been spreading all around London. Yeah, he told Lord Savadin's valet. Who presumably told old Lord Savadin. Yes. Who is not so much an open mind as an open mouth, yeah. as we learned from O'Brien. So quite an old bitty, yeah. Lord Savadin. <laughs> Fucking Lord Savadin. <laughs> Always hated that guy. 
Thomas then reports that Bates almost caught him stealing that bottle of wine. Yes. And O'Brien encourages him to find something wrong with Bates and nail him before he can turn Thomas in, which is hilarious that she says nail him because <laughs> Thomas is gay. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. And, and this show goes to show why O'Brien is better than Thomas, because she's at least competent in her evil. Yeah, he's just like, oh, I stole some wine and I got caught. What now? I mean, honestly, it's a really stupid plan on his part. Yeah. You know? As with all of his plans. I mean, it'd be one thing if Mr. Carson was a terrible butler. But he's a very right. good butler. Yeah. And he takes his job very seriously. Like, he's already on this case. It's only a matter of time, Thomas. Mm-hmm. Down in the Carson cave. <laughs> That's right. It's too bad Carson doesn't have his own butler. You know, like <laughs> Alfred. Yeah. I guess the closest thing he has is Mrs. Hughes. Yeah. So then we've got uh, Sybil talking to Lord Grantham. She needs the governess cart to pop in on old Mrs. Stewart. I don't know if you want to pop in on someone you describe as old Mrs. Stewart. Like, it sounds like you might cause a heart attack. <laughs> it's true. But uh, we know nothing and possibly never will about old Mrs. Stewart. So we have no idea about that. But uh, Lord Grantham suggests that he get Branson to drive her to the village very enthusiastically. Mm-hmm. Like, yeah, sure. Get that weird commie Irishman to drive <laughs> you into the village. Well, she's not going in the village, I don't think. She's going to Moulton. Oh, right, Moulton. Which I yes. just, you know, it probably is a village. A but it's, village, not You know, she doesn't, village. you know, yeah. Mm-hmm. Although I guess they do get driven to Downton Village on occasion. Yeah. There's also uh, Lord Grantham comments on the fact that every Tom, Dick, and Harry seems to have a motor these days. Well, it's a good thing his name is Robert. <laughs> yes. And when he went to the market recently, there were five cars parked there. Heavens! Yeah. It's pretty shocking. Daisy uh, arrives the next morning for work. Uh, She's late. And she gets interrogated by O'Brien and Thomas regarding the dead Mr. Pamuk. Right. Daisy's a terrible liar. (laughs) Yeah. Again. It it happens on the staircase, and I can see that O'Brien planned this all out. She's like, okay, here's what's going to happen. Thomas, you loom menacingly over her, Mm -hmm. and I will be lit from below, and she'll be very intimidated. Mm -hmm. And she is, and nervously runs away. And here's why, really, clearly Thomas's idiocy is rubbing off on (laughs) O'Brien. Because even if Daisy does know something... Daisy's not smart enough to be part of whatever scam they're going to try to run off of this. Like right. it's, it's like expecting a dog to help with a bank robbery. You know? Yeah. It's just not going to work out well for anyone. So then we're down at, in the village, in fact. Matthew is bicycle stalking Mary, <laughs> right. uh, which is weird. And Mary is explaining how annoying it is because she constantly has to send food to her aunt Rosamond. And they have to telegram her butler so he can come and pick it up at King's Cross. And it's all very complicated. (laughs) And uh, she hates it. But it turns out, actually, Matthew knows who she's talking about because Aunt Rosamond actually wrote a letter to Matthew welcoming welcoming him into the family when he was first named heir. Yeah, once again, Aunt Rosamond seems very nice and helpful. Anyway, they have a short discussion, and Matthew reveals to Mary that he's just not that into Edith. <laughs> yeah. He asks uh, if, if there's going to be any more church visiting with mm-hmm. Edith, which I'm like, oh, yeah. That's what the kids visiting. are calling it these days, huh? <laughs> yeah. Um, Would you like to visit me, church? <laughs> Um, but no, no church visiting in the future for, for Matthew and Edith. They, they're out, out in front of the post office, which uh, advertises that it has picture postcards mm-hmm. available. Do they have those saucy picture postcards? Hmm, probably not out in the display cases. <laughs> you probably have to like, go in the back. That's probably true. And have like a special passcode. Yeah. 
So Daisy uh, is continuing to be late for things. Uh, she gets into Lady Sybil's room late. She hasn't had any breakfast yet. So Anna, being the stand-up gal that she is, tells her to just have a biscuit from Sybil's biscuit jar. And Daisy freaks out because they're not... Right. And they're strictly not allowed to eat out of their biscuit jars. Yeah, it's which, not Daisy's biscuit jar. Yeah, and uh, Anna says it's ridiculous because none of them eat the biscuits in the biscuit jars. Which are provided to them, which to me seems insane <laughs> yeah. from a fiscal solvency point of view for this family. <laughs> it's like, okay, none of our daughters are eating these biscuits in these biscuit jars. Why do we persist in having them? Like, that's got to be, you know, a couple pounds a week <laughs> that you could be saving on biscuit jars. Yeah, but you never know. One of these days, one of them's going to want a biscuit. God <laughs> forbid they have to wait. <laughs> Then uh, it's Gwen's turn to have a bit of a turn Mm -hmm. and uh, sit down on the bed. Her turn, nowhere near as convincing as Daisy's. Right. You can just see her thinking, I'm having a turn. I'm having a turn. (laughs) Yes. Uh, But at that moment, conveniently enough, Carson walks into the room and uh, asks why she's sitting on Lady Sybil's bed. Uh, She explains that she's not feeling well. uh, and they, They eventually decide that... She can go to bed and lie down, and, and they've only got one room left. Anna can handle it mm-hmm. by herself. <laughs> the, the whole time, and this conversation takes about a minute, and the whole time Daisy is just standing there. Petrified. Petrified, holding the biscuit jar. just. <laughs> and Carson, being a tough cookie himself, uh, notices and asks Daisy, Why are you holding Lady Sybil's biscuit jar? Daisy, to her credit, says, I was just polishing it before I put it back. Yes. And it's made of glass. <laughs> so clearly it doesn't need to be polished. But still, I, I was impressed. I was like, that is the smartest thing Daisy has ever said. <laughs> and uh, Carson just says, see that you do. Yeah. And you can just see him on his way out thinking like, oh, yeah. Can't get one over on old Carson. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Yeah, but I did like that scene. It, oh, yeah. Yeah, it shows, first of all, that Anna is a great co-worker because she surely knows full well that Gwen's just faking it or whatever. But Anna knows. Sometimes you gotta, you know, you need to fake sick once in a while. She'll always back you up. Mm-hmm. And then Carson is like, he's not, he knows Daisy is stupid. <laughs> and as long as she I Maybe mean, that's why he let it go. He was like, you yeah. know what? You could have said any number of things. <laughs> But you said a, a decent one. That was a decent excuse. Yeah. Like, he wants everything to run perfectly, but he's not, like, a jerk about it. Yeah. Well, and, you know, I have no doubt, too, that Daisy did polish it before she put it back. <laughs> You're right. True to her word. <laughs> so, uh, down in the kitchen, uh, Mrs. Hughes walks in on McGee, who is having an argument with Mrs. Patmore. Surprise, surprise. <laughs> yes. McGee wants them to make a new pudding, which is just a generic term for a dessert. Uh, in this context, called Apple Charlotte for the the visit of Anthony Strahlin. Mm-hmm. Mrs. Patmore refuses. She has already planned her strawberry meringue. Raspberry. Or raspberry meringue, thank you. And she can't change now. It's just too late. She, she refuses. Uh, McGee can't see why it's a problem, at which point Daisy helpfully offers to help Mrs. Patmore read the new receipt for Apple Charlotte, if that's the problem. <laughs> <laughs> Yes. 
That does not go over well with Mrs. Patmore. And uh, <laughs> basically, McGee sees that she's touched a nerve somehow. And you can right. see her thinking, like, why do I ever come down here? <laughs> right. She's like, fine. Raspberry meringue. Yeah. Whatever. So she steps away. And we can hear Mrs. Patmore screaming at Daisy. Because Daisy goes, I was only trying to help. And Mrs. Patmore says, oh, like Judas was only trying to help when he led the Roman soldiers to the garden. Like, <laughs> yeah. that is... A hell of a trip play on Daisy. <laughs> yeah. Like who really was literally, she said, if that will help. She yeah. was exactly trying to help. <laughs> anyway, McGee quietly says to Mrs. H that maybe she should be looking after Daisy a little bit because it looks like Mrs. Patmore is going to eat her alive. Oh, right. And it's like, finally, I'm glad at least finally somebody from upstairs is noticing the verbal abuse yeah. that's taking place <laughs> between Mrs. Patmore and Daisy. Yeah. But as we can see, planning a dinner party is indeed a complicated affair that requires a lot of coordination on everybody's part. And now it's time that we learn a little bit more about dinner parties in a segment that we like to call Fashion Backwards, with Kelly Anakin. All right. So uh, this information comes as per usual from Evangeline Holland over at edwardianpromenade.com. But it turns out dinner parties were the most important social function in Edwardian times, even more than like a ball or, mm. you know, a hunt or something like that. Mm -hmm. And whether or not a noble lady could pull off a successful dinner party had an enormous impact on her family's social standing. So you're saying it was an even bigger deal than a flower show. Yes. <laughs> believe it or not, much bigger deal than a flower show. <laughs> A large dinner party required invitations to be sent about four to six weeks in advance. And if you did accept an invitation, it was considered socially binding. Mm -hmm. So if you did flake out on it for a non-good reason, which I can only think death <laughs> right. would have been the only one, yeah. uh, it would reflect very poorly upon you and you probably would not be invited to as many prestigious dinner parties. Mm -hmm. And invitations could be just purchased at stationary shops and they weren't actually much different from invitations today. They just, you know, they would have blank lines for the date and the time of the dinner party, which kind of surprised me. I just assumed that everybody was like handwriting everything. Mm -hmm. And the dinner hour itself was between eight and nine o'clock and the guests were expected to arrive at least 15 minutes ahead of the time listed on the invitation. Oh. So uh, tardiness, not uh, well received. All right. And then on their arrival, the guests would leave their outerwear with a servant and then join the host and hostess in the drawing room. If you were in America in this time period, if you were a guest, you could expect cocktails at this time. Oh. But uh, until the end of World War One, the Brits didn't have a cocktail hour, and they would just sit around and chat until dinner was served. The men would stand and the women would sit. And the host and hostess would make introductions of any guests who weren't acquainted with each other, unless it was a particularly large dinner party. In that case, the butler would stand at the drawing room door to announce each guest as they arrived. So individual introductions weren't needed. Uh-huh. And then here's where things get really complicated. Okay. Uh, when it came time to go into dinner, the host and hostess would lead, but the host would escort the highest-ranking female guest and the hostess would escort the highest-ranking male guest. And then the rest of the guests would follow an order of precedence. But it was a faux pas to send a husband and wife or a parent and child pair into dinner together. Oh. It also got further complicated if the highest-ranking guests were relatives of the host and hostess. So if that was the case, then their status was in abeyance for the night. It was suspended. 
Um, and I'm not really clear then once it was suspended at what point they would then go into dinner in the order of precedence. Like, do they go in last or what the deal is? Yeah, yeah. And it was considered a good idea to send, uh, you know, men and women in together. And that's why it's so important to balance numbers with the dinner party, as McGee mentioned and made a horrible joke about (laughs) in that first episode with the the Duke of Crowborough. Yeah. At smaller dinner parties, the host himself would indicate where each couple was supposed to sit as they walked in. Although if he didn't, and I can't see why he wouldn't, it well. seems like a real jerk move. <laughs> but in that case, the guests would sit in order of precedence. Mm-hmm. And again, it's not clear to me then, even in order of precedence, you know, if you were supposed to sit not with your spouse. Right. Because, uh, I mean, the idea was clearly to encourage conversation and people making new social connections. Right, right, right. Uh, so it, if the party was a large one, place cards would be used and uh, menus would be printed out and placed between the seats so they could, the guests could see what was going to be served, assuming they could speak French because all of the uh, dishes served would be listed in French. Mm. Um, and I would assume at this point, upper nobility would probably be at least, you know, they would have at least a little French. Yeah. Enough to read a menu. Yeah. The etiquette for eating was very strict. Again, as we heard from Mary decrying Matthew's use of his knife. Right. If you ate off your knife or tucked a napkin into your collar, you were toast socially. Wow. These things were very carefully looked after. Mm -hmm. And so if you should ever find yourself invited to an Edwardian dinner party, (laughs) here are a few things to remember. You eat your soup with a tablespoon and you want to spoon your soup away from you. So you don't splash your outfit or the table and you never want to slurp. Although that kind of, that one is still, I think in, in use today. Yeah. Eat any desserts, peas, or made dishes such as quenelles, patties, or rissoles with a fork only. No need for your knife. All right. Yeah. And I was surprised that you use a fork to eat dessert. Yeah. And then cheese, cherries, grapes, and other sort of finger food type things are eaten very daintily with the hands, and any pits are to be disposed of very discreetly. Yeah. And then after dessert, or pudding, as they say on the show, the women would rise at a signal from the hostess. That signal would be the hostess bowing to the highest-ranking female, and they went through back into the uh, drawing room for coffee while the men stayed in the dining room for claret and brandy and the fine smokable of their choice. Mm-hmm. And according to Evangeline Holland, though, by 1914, the smarter hostesses had done away with the practice of separating men and women after dinner. But we all know McGee is not the sharpest tool in the shed, so she <laughs> is still doing it. And there may have also been pressure on her not to change being an American. Um, right. And I mean, That's clearly, true. the family is conservative yeah. in its social practices. Well, and I would also expect, because like I said, they were kind of up, I believe, in Yorkshire and, and sort Yeah, of it, would, it would take much longer yeah. for the new fashions to reach them. Yeah, yeah. So there was actually little etiquette in terms of the after-dinner portion of the evening. Uh, there was no etiquette in terms of what order guests had to leave in, which is nice. Oh, yeah. Yeah, apart from the host and hostess needing to escort the guests out to their carriages or motor cars, and in a country, i.e., where uh, Downton Abbey is, sometimes the party would play games or cards and it would go really late into the night. Yeah. So uh, these could uh, be very uh, late night affairs. Yeah. Well, I mean, if they're not starting dinner till eight or nine, like that's, yeah, yeah. So that's uh, the etiquette of dinner parties. Well, that is handy to know. Just in case you ever get invited to dinner at Julian Fellow's house. Oh, and one more thing I thought of, just is just something that I learned from Neil Stevenson and wanted to point out that drawing room has nothing to do with drawing as an art. It is a short for withdrawing room. Oh. It is where you withdraw to. I don't know 
what I thought it was, but it certainly wasn't that. I think yeah. I always thought of it as like drawing curtains or something. Mm, yeah. So back to the show. Uh, Sybil has gotten the, presumably this is the governess cart, the horse-drawn cart, and is, is riding along. And then Gwen jumps out of the bushes uh, wearing the dress that we had previously seen Sybil give her to uh, go to her interview. Sybil is concerned that uh, somebody might find out that she is gone, but Gwen assures her that Anna will not give her away. They're like sisters. Sybil says that they're nothing like her sisters. Yes. (laughs) Because clearly not all sisters are created equal. (laughs) Yes. Well, fake sisters are better than real sisters. It's true. Anna is in Lady Edith's room, finishing up her bed, as we saw uh, Gwen is not there helping her, because she is off on her scandalous job interview. (laughs) Mr. Bates comes in and offers to help, and I'm like, how much help could you possibly be? Yeah. Uh, Anyway, they talk about how sorry they feel for Lady Edith, even though, as Anna says... I don't know why when you see what she has and we haven't. Right. Uh, But clearly, even the servants of Downton Abbey can see that Edith, bad news. Yeah. Yeah. And they talk a little bit more about events prior to the show that apparently Edith had really... Been in love with uh, their cousin Patrick, who was sort of informally betrothed to Mary. Right. But Edith was truly in love with him. And well, she said that before. Yeah. She said she would have been after him like a shot. Right. But it wasn't clear to me of whether that was just sort of... Self-preservation and right, bitchery. Right. Or... But there, there was some real feeling there, apparently. Mm-hmm. And then, uh, not in so many words, Anna confesses to being very sad that she loves Mr. Bates and he doesn't love her back. Yes. Well, she says it's... Well, they say how sorry if they are for Edith about that. And Anna says that it's always sad. When the person you love doesn't love you back. And yes. Mr. Bates, in a classic dude move, is like, oh, I was saying that it was sad because he died. Yes. Because men are from Mars, women <laughs> are from Venus. Yes, and it's followed by a classic British, oh, or, uh, oh, mm, I see. I'll uh, just be going now. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Uh, anyway, Bates vaguely hints that maybe he loves Anna, but he can't say so for vague Unexplained reasons. It's like he has some sort of dark secret. <gasps> no. <laughs> I, and then Anna's going out and he says, sometimes you want to say something, but you can't. It's like, yes, sometimes you're a douchebag. <laughs> so Gwen arrives at her interview and is just adorably awkward yeah. and sitting on her bench and all. Perky and nervous and it's very cute. Yes. Mom has come to visit the Dowager Countess and she tells the Dowager Countess that she thinks the committee has been giving the Dowager Countess Best Bloom Award because they feel obliged as some sort of local tradition. But the Dowager Countess insists it's because her gardener grows the best bloom, which to me, shouldn't your gardener be getting the Best Bloom Award? Like, yeah. you didn't really do anything. Yeah, that aspect of things is left entirely unaddressed. Yes. Anyway, Mom wants her to tell the committee, hey... You don't have to give me this award. I want it to go to the best flower. Uh, but the Dowager Countess doesn't think there's a problem because, as she says, that is precisely what they already know and do. Yes. Mom remains unconvinced. Yes. No, it, it's, I, I like at the beginning of this how at the Dowager <laughs> Countess is like, oh, I thought I'd, this was another telling off about the hospital. Uh-huh. So and, now they've, they've got a whole new set of things to square off about. Yeah. And you got to say, Mom has no problem whatsoever telling off the Dowager she Countess. She really? Well, because look, I don't know what exactly Mom's title is going to be. Once Matthew ascends right. to his earldom. Mm-hmm. 
But, you know, if she's not the Dowager Countess, I mean, she's going to be occupying that position. Yeah. So, I mean, I think, you know, and it's never really addressed on the show, Mm -hmm. but I think it's pretty clear that she has no problem going up against Cousin Violet because she knows Cousin Violet's days are numbered. Yeah. I mean, you know, I don't know what happens to the Dowager Countess if for some odd reason Robert were to die before she were. Mm -hmm. But, you know. Things things would be different, and yeah. she would not occupy the same rarefied uh, status as she does currently. Yeah. Uh, we then see Gwen leaving her interview, also awkwardly. And adorably. <laughs> yes. She scampers away. <laughs> Bates enters Lord Grantham's room, and Lord Grantham is looking at his case of snuff boxes. Yes. And he's squinting and saying that one of his fancy snuff boxes is missing, and passive aggressively says to Bates, but why would it be missing? Like, come on, like, we all know the implications there. And right. also, they both just keep looking in the case. As if by yeah. continuing to look in the case, the snuff box is just gonna, like, be summoned back into its vacant spot. Yeah. And I, I think what I would look at this as, is if I was Lord Grantham, is like, hmm, one of my snuff boxes is missing. This could be just the opportunity I need to take up a non-stupid hobby. <laughs> Sadly, Lord Grantham never takes an opportunity (laughs) to take up a non-stupid anything. (laughs) That is true. We then see Sybil and Gwen. They're walking, oddly enough. Apparently, their horse has thrown a shoe, which is... The equivalent of, like, a flat tire. Yeah, yeah, pretty much. So they're trying to find a smithy Mm -hmm. in order to get their horse reshoed. Yes. Then we cut back to downstairs at Downton. Where Lady Sybil's absence has been noted. Yes. By various parties. (laughs) That's right. Carson is going to notify the police if she doesn't Mm -hmm. show up soon. Then we cut back to the Smithy's house. But the Smithy is unfortunately out of town. And there's no one else nearby who could reissue their horse. Yeah. Which kind of... I don't know. It surprised me. I'm like, is doesn't this kind of thing come up? Like, isn't a smithy an important village I mean, resource? People are just... still primarily, I think, using right. horses. There I mean, at least in the cars. countryside. Yeah. 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 Particularly in the middle and lower classes. Yeah. I mean, but he's for purposes of, of the plot, yeah. there is no other smithy. And we do get a hilarious scene of Sybil and Gwen falling in the mud trying to get the horse to move. <laughs> yes. uh, Sybil... <laughs> Screams at the horse, whose name is Dragon, that if he doesn't move, she's going to have him boiled for glue, which is, like, my favorite horse joke ever. Uh, Dragon apparently understands English and bolts off, and they both fall in the mud. Yes. It's uh, Dragon 1, Women's Rights 0 in that scene. (laughs) We get a scene of McGee dressing for dinner, worrying that Sybil is lying in a ditch somewhere, which, which... she yeah, was. Yeah. I mean, only momentarily, but she was. She was not dead, but <laughs> right. she was lying in one. Yeah. Anyway, then she starts, like, complaining to McGee about how her daughters are all too old and they all need to have their own establishments, which, like, Sybil's not even out yet. Yeah. I mean, I, I see your point about Mary and possibly Edith, but it's mm-hmm. also like, why have you not been trying harder? Yeah. You know, it takes more than just sitting around complaining to your husband <laughs> that your daughter should be married. Like, yeah. if you want them to get married, you have to devote a lot of time to it. <laughs> yes. And she says, nobody ever warns you about raising daughters. You think it's going to be little women, and then they're at their, each other's throats from dawn till dusk, <laughs> saying that in her mournful, weird voice as she says yeah. everything. Meanwhile, Brian's like, uh, what's little women? Yeah. I have. She's like, I'm illiterate. I don't I'm, know. I'm illiterate in English. but o'brien does take a take a little note from the uh at each other's throats bit 
from dawn till dusk. Yes. So then uh, upstairs, Gwen is back in her room. They have made it home safely. Uh, Anna wants to know where she was. Gwen is apparently surprised that Anna had come up to check on her. And Anna says, of course I did. I had to change for the mm-hmm. afternoon, which Gwen should have known. Yeah, because Gwen also has to change for the afternoon. Right. Every happens. afternoon. Yeah. But Anna, of course, covered for her. And Gwen is just going to have to wait and see. They did not give an immediate answer at the job interview, mm-hmm. which is not surprising. Edith is writing a letter, and O'Brien comes into the room and to tell her that Lady Sybil is is back safely. And then O'Brien just sort of stands there. Creepily. Creepily. Uh, won't leave. Uh, because she wants to tell Edith that Daisy may have ideas about what happened to Mr. Pamuk and that is related to Lady Mary and uh, all this sort of thing. Edith is intrigued, mm-hmm. as well she might be. Uh, so she asks for Daisy to come see her in the morning. So Brian leaves, and then uh, Mary walks in, the subject of the plotting. Yeah, and they talk about Sybil's horse throwing its shoe and how, you know, she had to walk for miles. And Mary said, you know, she doesn't think she would have gotten down off the horse. Right. And Edith uh, gets a sweet burn in and says, no, I don't suppose you would. <laughs> and Mary finally, like, seems to notice, oh, hey, Edith, like, really hates me. Uh, yeah, yeah. Uh, I do just want to say I really like that scene between O'Brien and Edith, you know, yeah. having a conversation, conniving sneak to conniving sneak. <laughs> yeah. At well, fi- you know, it's like, finally, O'Brien's found a collaborator yeah. who understands how it's supposed to work. Yeah. Why well, just, I mean, I was like, O'Brien's just playing Edith like a funny looking fiddle. <laughs> So yes, we then see uh, Daisy has, has come up to Edith's room. It's the morning uh, with O'Brien. She's doing her patented Daisy. Clearly I know something, but I'm not going to say anything about it. Yeah, deer in headlights maneuver. Edith asks O'Brien to leave. And O'Brien's quite put out by this. Yeah, she's like, hey, this is my evil scheme. <laughs> but uh, hey, you know, beauty before age and social standing in this <laughs> right. case. Yeah. Although I use all of those terms loosely. <laughs> <laughs> yes. And uh, Edith is eventually manages to get it out of Daisy. She, she says that why should Daisy bear the burden of Mary's secrets? Which is actually a pretty good point. It is a good point. And Edith is like, please, I love being burdened with Mary's secrets. <laughs> They've got all that money in them. <laughs> <laughs> we cut to uh, the flower show again. It is nearly ready, according oh to McChee. Mom is running around like a chicken with her head cut off, <laughs> crowing about Mr. Molesley's roses. And the Dowager Countess and Mom have a really nice bitch off here <laughs> where, you know, she's saying all these great things about Mr. Molesley's roses. The Dowager Countess calls her bluff and, sa- you know, basically is the first one to say, uh, yes, Cousin Isabel has been bothering me and <laughs> saying that I don't deserve to win. Yeah. And Matthew actually sticks up for the Dowager Countess, telling his mother it's very ungallant of her to say that. <laughs> yeah. But, uh, you know, they have a nice little fight. And Cousin Violet says, how wonderful you are. The way you see room for improvement wherever you look. I never knew such reforming zeal. And then Mom, undaunted. I shall take that as a compliment. And then uh, the Dowager Countess says, in full earshot of Matthew, who was clearly quite amused, that she must have said it wrong. (laughs) Yeah. Pretty great. Then, uh... The Dowager Countess storms off, and Mom goes around probably to bother some other people about Molesley. 
and Matthew and Mary discuss the, you know, what just happened. Yeah. And uh, Mary asks if he likes flowers. <laughs> and Matthew says no, but he is interested in the village. So, mm-hmm. you know, and I have to give him credit. I mean, yeah. this is a big event for the village, and it's good that he's there. Yeah. And they discuss his work on the cottages. Yeah. Well, and, and Mary asks him about the cottages, which mm-hmm. is clearly like, uh, and Matthew recognizes it's like, oh, you're actually expressing interest in things that I care about. Yes. We finally made it to one-tenth of first base. <laughs> Anyway, uh, so she chides him about working too hard, knowing what it did for Jack in the old proverb. Uh, But Matthew snarks back that Mary thinks he's a dull boy anyway, Mm -hmm. and she has no response to that. It's Uh, true. But he does say that he plays as well, and he is coming up for dinner at Downton tonight. And he asks if it's in service of anything. I'm assuming this is the Anthony Strallen dinner, which has been set up presumably without really consulting Lord Grantham to yeah. throw Mary in the general direction of Sir Anthony <laughs> Strallen. But anyway, Mary describes it as just a couple of dreary neighbors. Uh, yes. So back downstairs, uh, Carson announces to the servants that Lord Grantham's very valuable snuff box is missing and uh, the standard, anybody who has any information, come to me, your words will be held in confidence. Uh, And then he walks out. And uh, uh, O'Brien and Thomas are very, like, dickish and smug, like, oh, I wouldn't want to be Mr. Bates now or whatever. And just, you know, evil scheming tip number one, (laughs) if you're responsible for the missing thing going missing... Don't be the first ones to talk. Don't be the first ones to accuse someone else Mm -hmm. and appear so gleeful at the apparent downfall of the person (laughs) you're setting up for a fall. Like, that's immediately going to set off some alarm bells in somebody's (laughs) head. Yeah. Bates handles it with his usual, like... Defeatist idiocy. martyrdom. He says, I hate this kind of thing. Like, being framed for things? Are there people that don't hate that? Like... (laughs) I love being framed for things. You know, I was the first suspect in the murder of Nicole Brown Simpson. Oh, really? Mm-hmm. That's I'm, I'm glad uh, that that worked out for you. I was you. 11 at the time. It was <laughs> a big deal. Very exciting for me. I think I would have heard about that at some point. Well, I have excellent lawyers, Tom. <laughs> <laughs> Good to know. We cut back to uh, Mary dressing for dinner, wearing the same red dress that she's worn at least, like, six other times so far, which is fine. I generally kind of appreciate that kind of thing, but for some reason here, it's really irritating the crap out of me. I mean, we've established that they only get new frocks every so often. Mm -hmm. Anyway, McGee comes into her room. I just hate when McGee comes into her room, because Mary's like, I'm trying to decide if this brooch works, but I'm not sure. And, like, McGee just goes, oh, charming. And I'm like, that's not what she asked you. She wanted to know if that brooch works with her outfit, not an evaluation of the brooch itself or your comments on the decor. Sometimes I think McGee has some sort of, like, mental problem. (laughs) Some sort of deficiency. (laughs) Anyway, so McGee has come in to ask Mary to attend to Anthony Strallen at dinner. Yeah. Mary is bitching about how many times am I expected to marry the man sitting next to me at dinner. And I see this is the thing that kills me. McGee, frequently very quick. Yeah. Because she says back, as many times as it takes. Yeah. And I'm like, why can't you just be a hard ass all the time? (laughs) Why do you have to mess around with this like, oh, I'm the cool mom (laughs) who says nice Non-committal things. <laughs> anyway, McGee then drops the bomb that there is a rumor in London that Mary is not virtuous. Yes. And Mary recognizes the gravity of the situation. Uh-huh. And she asks if Papa knows. 
And McGee says yes, but he dismisses it because unlike you and me, he does not know that it is true. Yeah. And, you know, Mary's trying to, like, brush it off and saying, oh, the world is changing. And McGee, again, sharp as a tack. Not that much and not fast enough for you. Yeah. Because it might be enough for Sybil, but definitely not enough for Mary. Yeah, yeah. You know, if Edith had any virtue that she needed guarding against, <laughs> I'm sure maybe it would be okay for her too. Well, yes. And they do, in fact, then segue onto the ground they can always find agreement on, which is making fun of Edith. Yes. <laughs> no, because McGee doesn't even, like, try to, like... I'm like, is she even your daughter? Like, presumably you had to have given birth to her. But, like, what is the deal? Because Mary's like, oh, you should help Edith. Edith needs all the help she can get. And McGee's like, look... You're right, but don't be mean to her. She has fewer advantages than you. <laughs> right. And and Edith actually is eavesdropping on the whole thing and overhears it. And also, unfortunately for Mary, she made the mistake in the course of this conversation of saying, Kamal Pamuk, my lover, thereby confirming to Edith, the eavesdropper, yeah. that everything Daisy and O'Brien have been putting in her ear is 100% unequivocally true. Yes. Yeah, I mean, I do feel a little sorry for Edith, you know, you sh- to hear your family members just talking about mm-hmm. how unattractive you are. Yeah, but look, that girl puts her bitch face on. Like, <laughs> yeah. Edith undergoes a striking change out in the hallway. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Uh, and wearing a very pretty dress as well. Yes. Then we cut back down to the kitchen, and Mrs. Patmore runs into the counter and drops her tray of roast chickens. Yes. And uh, immediately blames Daisy, who was nowhere (laughs) near the chickens. (laughs) Yeah. Daisy was standing off to the side, had nothing to do with it. Uh, Unfortunately, there's a cat in the kitchen. (laughs) Right. And the cat is chewing on one of the chickens. And I'm like, who let the cat in there in the first place? Yeah. Back to the stables. And I'm like, who let the stables like somebody (laughs) should really kick that stable boy in the groin uh anyway mrs patmore is not being helpful and freaking out yeah anna is predictably awesome and says come on give me a cloth we're just gonna clean him up (laughs) yeah and they just put him on the plates and you know gwen's all like you know i'm glad we don't have to eat them and mrs patmore helpfully says with the eye can't see the heart won't grieve over no and it's true and as i and anybody else that has worked in food service can tell you first rule of food service never tell the customer when a cat has been chewing on (laughs) the <laughs> so then we're up at the dinner. Anthony Stralin is being as dull as paint, as mm-hmm. predicted, uh, talking about new farming technique and mechanization is the way of the future. And Mary, like, barely pretends to care mm-hmm. um, and then sort of turns away. Edith actually pretends to care. Mm-hmm. And convincingly pretends to care and, and asks, says that she'd be interested to see one of the new harvesters. And she smiles. Yeah. I don't know that she's ever smiled on this show, <laughs> but she's almost cute in this scene because you can just see, you know, she's was very upset in the previous scene and, mm-hmm. and you know, she decided to do something about it. Unlike everyone at Downton Abbey <laughs> ever, yeah. she has decided to be proactive. <laughs> mm-hmm. uh, Mary notices this and is very upset. Yeah. That Edith is getting even one iota of attention. Right. Because clearly, Mary got to have it all. <laughs> yes. William uh, downstairs is wondering what will happen if they don't find this snuff box that everybody's so worked up about. Thomas is saying he wouldn't be Mr. Bates for all the tea in China. Right. And Anna really gets in a sweet burn and says she is sure Mr. Bates must feel the same way about Thomas. <laughs> yes. And Mrs. O- Miss O'Brien is just like standing there, like looking off into space. 
Which was we- like this was because Anna's like, "What are you doing?" Miss O'Brien's like, "Nothing." And I'm like, "This is a weird scene." Yeah, it was. Like I completely forgot that it had happened. <gasps> anyway, but what we do find out is if they don't find the snuff box, Mr. Carson will call for a search. Mm-hmm. At which point they'll go and they will, you know, turn sure. over every right. every servant's rooms right. to see if they can find out if somebody took the snuffbox. Yes. Uh, and then uh, we're back up at dinner and Mary and Matthew are flirting quite shamelessly yeah. after McGee takes up the care and feeding of Sir Anthony Strallen. <laughs> right. Uh, McGee, being dull as paint herself, I'm sure is an adequately matched conversation partner. And at this point, the uh, pudding comes up, the raspberry meringue. We actually, at the beginning of the previous scene, mm-hmm. we saw them starting to take it up and Mrs. Pat more was sprinkling sugar on it at the last minute. Unfortunately, unfortunately, Sir Anthony Strallen takes a bite and flips out <laughs> because he got a giant mouthful of salt. salt. Mary and Matthew crack up about this because it is pretty funny because he just yeah. like, he, he's like, oh, good God. Like you, would th- like you would think somebody pooped in his mouth. <laughs> yeah. Uh, but Edith jumps in and saves the day. And, you know, because she apologizes and says, oh, you must think us very disorganized. Right. Uh, right. Which, as, you know, we noted in uh, Fashion Backward, very important at this dinner party, you know. Yeah. Especially well, with Mary's reputation kind of, like, teetering yeah. on the brink. Yeah. Well, and also, I mean, before even that, McGee had, you know, done immediate damage control. <laughs> in my favorite line, I think, in the entire <laughs> series, Carson, take this away. Bring fruit Bring cheese. Bring anything to take this taste away. Like, I mean, it's like somehow somebody served them a dead body. Uh, yeah. I don't know. Just like the gravity of the situation yeah. is so outsized and disproportionate <laughs> to anything that's actually important. Yes. And we do see Carton's, Carson's various reaction mm-hmm. shots. I mean, he, he feels just as strong. Oh, yes. And rightly so. It's, no, uh, and I mean, you know, and that's clearly what's expected and they all do it. it just It's just McGee, man. Everything <laughs> that lady does... Yes. Every little thing she does is boring magic. <laughs> which brings us to our second recurring segment, in which our resident history aficionado will give us a little background on Edwardian agriculture. This is a little thing we like to call Tom Repeats History. Thank you. Yeah, so I, I was wanted to look into Edwardian agriculture uh, because that is what Anthony Stalin is so worked up about. Mm-hmm. And so I, I, I started researching it, and of course I tried to uh, look on Wikipedia, as is my custom. Uh, but I actually, I had a lot of trouble with this one. You know, usually I've been able to find a whole bunch of interesting facts. And this one, you know, there wasn't a ton. I had to pull in sort of a lot of general information from a lot of areas. But it turned out to be somewhat interesting. Uh, Anthony Stralin was actually really kind of a forward thinker here. Um, everybody's, you know, making fun of him all the time. But, I mean, while, you know, mechanization had been going on, you know, for centuries, uh, actually our prog rock fans in the audience may know that it's sort of dated to Jethro Tull, uh-huh. who in 1701 invented the seed drill mm-hmm. that enabled seeds to be sowed uh, evenly. But the real revolution from horsepower to gasoline power and tractors really still was just barely getting started at this point even even in the mid-1930s horses were still the dominant form of power on farms which kind of surprised me i kind of thought that would really get started well you also have to figure that any mechanization during world war one was being diverted Mm. primarily to the war effort right right that's true and also a big part of the problem was that since about the 1880s, there had been a huge drop in crop prices 
uh, in England. Mainly, there was competition from imported grain from America. Uh, that was a big reason. Way to go, breadbasket. Right. And also, the story, Gwen's storyline right now is actually directly related to it. Because you recall that Mrs. Hughes, she had two choices, working on a farm or working in service. But now there are more choices out there. You know, uh, Gwen can become a secretary. Other people can move into the city and become, you know, clerks and all sorts of other things. So that means farm labor is getting more expensive mm-hmm. because the lower class has more options now. You've got to pay them more to get them to, you know, work on a farm because that's terrible. <laughs> um, so, you know, farmers weren't really able to make these investments in mechanization and that sort of thing. You know, they were focusing on, like, smaller changes, like just expanding their dairy production and having less grain production because mm-hmm. dairy couldn't be sh- – you, you couldn't ship milk from America. It would go bad. Right. Uh, what interested me about this was that really, in this dinner party, Anthony Strahlin is the only one that's really confronting the whole sort of change that is going on. The change that actually does come with a roar. <laughs> right. Exactly, because the whole system that they are such exalted position in has always been based on the idea that agriculture is industry, Mm -hmm. that there's little smaller crafts around, but that agriculture is the main thing that's going on. And their wealth has always been based on they have a giant amount of land. Well, and that's what all, yeah, they're tenant farmers. Right, and their tenant farmers farm it and pay them, you know, out of the proceeds. But because for so long, for centuries, their whole thing has been that they don't work, Mm -hmm. that the land just sort of magically produces this money, Mm -hmm. it's almost like sort of classless, as we see, for them to actually be interested in the details of farming. Mm -hmm. Um, And so when these prices collapsed, starting from the 1880s, that's why their whole society was collapsing. That's why Lord Grantham had to go to America to get a rich Harris. That's why he was running out of money, because of changes to the agriculture industry Mm -hmm. that none of them were equipped to even think about. Well, and it's interesting to me just because, you know, I've always, you know, you read books and stuff and they talk about, you know, the, the penniless landed nobility. Mm-hmm. And I never quite understood what that meant. Right. I mean, because this actually brings it all into stark relief. Because I was right. like, well, if you have this land that has inherent value, I don't understand why you don't have money to go along with it. But it didn't occur to me that the lands that they had were being put to work like that. I just, you right. know, I just kind of assumed yeah. it was like this estate and, and that was it. Right. And well, and from their perspective, that was... They always had big areas that were just devoted to hunting and big grasslands, mm-hmm. and it was very ostentatiously right. showing that we don't need to work all this land. We can have land that is just unproductive mm-hmm. and decorative. Well, and I guess I just assumed it was all like that, right? but obviously not. Yeah, yeah. That was, you know, in the background, there was a bunch of just tenant farmers actually producing all their money, mm-hmm. but they never really addressed that. And so... so well, and I mean, and, and not even really doing that anymore. Yeah, yeah. And so, so when Lord Strahlin is saying, or Lord Anthony Strahlin? Sir Anthony Strahlin. Sir Anthony Strahlin, yeah. I get so confused. You would not do well going into dinner at this party. <laughs> no, you I would see. be very confused as to the order of precedence. I would, that is absolutely true. Uh, but when he says that mechanization is the challenge and we're going to have to meet it, you know, he's absolutely correct. Mm-hmm. And they're going pretty much to fail. Like, they're, you know, this is one of the many reasons that their system is kind of collapsing. Mm-hmm. And so, you know... Maybe he's Dahl's paint, but I have to hand it to him. He knew what was going on. Well done, Anthony Strallen, and thank you, Tom, for repeating history. You're welcome. Okay, so back into the show. Downstairs in the servants, you know, sort of uh, recreation area, Mrs. <laughs> yeah. Patmore is crying and blaming Daisy, of course. <laughs> 
Mrs. Hughes and Carson are very sympathetic to her. I'm I'm getting a little sniffly. There's definitely some dust in my eye at this point. <laughs> yeah. You know, because yeah. Mrs. Hughes is saying things, you know, Mrs. Patmore is saying, you know, I know that pudding. I've made it a hundred times. That's why I chose it. And Mrs. Hughes is like, yeah, that's why you wanted that one and not the one that... And it's, you know, yeah. it is a little backhanded. Yeah. Because, I mean, I mean, and she's not, you know, she's not saying it in an unkind way. Yeah. She's just saying, look, your whole reason for not wanting to do this one is that you didn't know it. And uh, somebody, I'm not sure who says, but it's, you know, it's not so bad. Nobody died. And I was like, you know, that's true. Usually somebody dies. Yeah. <laughs> There's too much death in the house. <laughs> uh, anyway, so... Mr. Carson kind of shoes everybody out, and Bates suggests that they all give Mrs. Patmore some some room to breathe. Mm-hmm. Anna doesn't want to leave, but Bates makes her. Yeah. Uh, Anna being the mother hen that she is. <laughs> yeah. Uh, anyway, but Carson sits down across from Mrs. Patmore and puts coal on the fire, and she immediately, through her tears, says, you know, he should get William or one of the Hall boys to do that. It's beneath your dignity. Yeah. And Carson uh, tells her that it won't kill him. Unlike her food. Boom. <laughs> yeah. Sorry. I'm so, no, I just have such a hard time, like, making fun of this scene because it's so sweet. No, it really And, is. I mean, Carson just, you know, he sits across and he just says, all in your own time, I think you have something you need to tell me. Yeah. And then we, then we cut back to Anna and Bates talking. And Anna tells Bates that she thinks the snuff box in his, is in his room. And Bates stupidly is like, you don't think I stole it, do you? <laughs> I'm Bates. <laughs> like, listen, Bates... From the moment that Lord Grantham said, my snuff box is missing, everybody at home was like, oh, Thomas stolen and planted it in Bates' room. Like, The fact that you can't even make that leap. Yeah. Anyway, so Anna says that Mr. Bates should go find it in his room, and then either he can put it in Thomas's room or give it to her, and she'll slip it into Miss O'Brien's, because Anna is the best. Yes, Anna is everybody's hero. As she says, fight fire with fire. That's what her mom always says. Yeah. And I'm like, I would like to meet your mom, Anna. <laughs> yes. And tell her what an excellent job of raising you she did. So Edith and Mary bitch off in the drawing room, mm-hmm. just in front of everyone. Yeah. Like, there's this old lady there that we haven't seen before, and or she's just sitting there, like, um... I might, you know, I, I know that guy. <laughs> right. Like, we talk a lot. Because <laughs> they're, they're complaining about the fact that Edith was, you know, flirting with Anthony Strallen. And, of course, yeah. despite the fact that Mary has no interest in this guy, right. just can't stand the fact. I mean, she, you know, she tries to intervene and says, Edith, you were very helpful. So yes. Edith is like, thank you. Uh, unfortunately, Mary also tells her that Matthew has proved a disappointment to Edith. And Edith is like, Edith's she looks like, flabbergasted. Yeah, well, Edith's like, who says that he has? And Mary's like, oh, he does. And, oh, wasn't I supposed to know? Yeah. So Edith stands up and stalks off. Mm-hmm. And Mary follows her and says... So that they can do a little private picture. Yeah. Mary says, you think I couldn't have that old booby if I wanted him? And basically they make a she's all that-esque bet. <laughs> uh, because Edith says Mary can't have every prize. And Mary says, oh, you want to bet? And Mm -hmm. so they do. Uh, And I'm sure that's not going to (laughs) backfire at all. We cut back down to downstairs, and Mrs. Padmore confesses to Carson that she's going blind. Yeah. I'm crying like a baby. It is is really very, very sad. Oh, because she's saying a blind cook. Whoever heard of such a thing? I mean, she has no other skills. Yeah. There's nothing else she can do but be a cook. Yeah. 
And it's and you know you know she likes the job. Mm-hmm. Like she's as, she's always as, as she's crazy always, as she is. Yeah, like she's always yelling at Daisy for not working because she's like, why would you not be cooking? Yeah, like this? what else would anyone <laughs> want to do? Anyway, and, but yeah. Carson is very sympathetic and very kind, and it's just absolutely heartbreaking. Yeah, <laughs> there is. He does. <laughs> He does say that he thinks she owes Daisy an apology, which Mrs. Padmore doesn't really think no. she owes well, because Daisy she an apology. Said, like, she's like, I managed as long as I could with that fool girl. And I'm like, look, I'll grant you that Daisy has messed up like twice on the whole show, but she hasn't messed up in a really long time. Yeah. You know, she's been there for like at least two years. Mm-hmm. Anyway, you know, it's a very sad scene. Yeah. I recommend if you need a good cry that you watch that scene. Yeah. Uh, Lord Grantham is walking with Matthew to go over into the drawing room and he encourages him to start again yes. with Mary. Because he noticed that the two of them were having a good time together uh-huh. at dinner. And he says, there's no reason that you can't be friends. And then immediately is like, hey, why don't you just get married though? Also, <laughs> yeah. That would be really cool for me. <laughs> right. That would be the best. Really get my wife off my back. Yeah. Anyway, uh, so then they go into the drawing room and Mary says, oh, I've been waiting for you. And it seems like she's talking to Matthew. Nope, talking old, dullest paint, Anthony Strallen. <laughs> yep. So she grabs him and he, she shows him some book. Yeah. Which I'm like, you just happen to have a book about mechanized farming laying around in your drawing room? Apparently so. Anyway. It's clearly right up his alley. He's excited to read this book. She's taken Edith completely off guard. I guess Edith didn't expect her to go for it immediately. Yeah. Edith's like, oh, I... Uh, oh. We were, uh, oh. Yeah. And then she sulks over by Matthew and says they've both been thrown over for a bigger prize. And uh, Matthew realizes, oh, she's talking to that guy now. And then he's like, uh, yeah, I'm leaving. I don't want to talk to you. I have a uh, headache. Yeah, that's <laughs> it. I got a headache. I got to yeah. go. No, and it's, again, feeling a little sorry for Edith, you know? She just wanted an old dude to call her own. Yeah, like, she, she didn't want much. Yeah. she re- The thing that she wanted... Mary would never stand. Mary said she couldn't stand 40 years of boredom and duty. Yeah. Edith, no problem with no. that. No. Yeah. Edith would be very happy with any <laughs> amount of boredom and duty. <laughs> That's right. Anything that gets her away from Mary. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> <sighs> so then Mary notices that Matthew's gone. Yeah. And then runs out to try and see where he went and finds William. And William informs her that he left. Didn't even wait for Branson to bring the car around. Wanted to walk. Yeah. Which is like, oh. Yeah. You fucked up. Yeah. (laughs) And then Lord Grantham goes over to Lady Grantham and says, Mary can be such a child. Because he has noticed this whole debacle. And he says, she thinks if you put a toy down, it'll still be there when you come back. Yeah. Uh, And McGee is like, what are you talking about? (laughs) Yeah. I'm like, seriously, do you ever pay attention to anything, McGee, at all? Just a little bit? No. Just busy thinking about the flower show. (laughs) The wretched flower show. (laughs) Anyway, and then Edith, much like the cheese, stands alone. (laughs) Yes. And then downstairs, Mr. Bates suggests to Mr. Carson that they go ahead and have that search for the missing snuff box. Yes. And Anna says we should do it right away, now that we've mentioned it. Yes. So that nobody has a chance to hide the box. And so Carson says, all right, I'll go get Mrs. Hughes and we'll go yeah. uh, turn over the rooms. <laughs> O'Brien and Thomas <laughs> run out of the room and the Benny Hill music starts playing. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, they're running up the stairs and Thomas is like, the boss to put it in your room or mine. Which makes him sound like Nutella on uh, Bromwell High to me. <laughs> 
Anyway, uh, Mrs. Hughes comes to O'Brien's room, and O'Brien's got two candles lit in a room, just like everything. Uh, right. Like, literally everything is just everywhere. Yeah. <laughs> and Mrs. Hughes hilariously says, oh, you have been busy. <laughs> <laughs> So uh, if Mr. Carson and Mrs. Hughes didn't have a slight tip-off yes. that this is kind of the source of the problem. Yeah. Also, while they're running up the stairs, O'Brien says, <laughs> why did I ever listen to you? And I'm like, you mean when you made this plan? When you suggested that you should do this? Yeah. Uh, so Matthew gets home, and Mom is somewhat surprised to see him and asks how the evening was. Yeah, she thought it would be later, as we learned. Right. He may have been there until, like, 3 in the morning, exactly. playing cards and whatnot. Mm-hmm. But so she asks how it was, uh, and he says he's sort of. He doesn't really make any sense. But right. mom, being the intuitive meddler that she is, yes, catches on that she thinks maybe Mary seemed like she was going to be like you know. Right. I like well, he you. says he says he thought things had changed, but he was wrong. Yeah. And it's like, no, you're wrong now. But anyway, he goes off to bed to masturbate angrily, no <laughs> doubt. <laughs> That's probably true. Mm-hmm. Finally, the day has come. The flower show. The flower show. The long vaunted flower show. <laughs> yes. Uh, we see uh, Mr. Molesley's ro- roses, which uh, do look pretty nice. I, I don't know I anything don't, about flowers, uh, yeah, but they're big. Yeah. I mean, is that all? Like, are flowers like boobs? Like the bigger they are, <laughs> the better they are? Is that like how it works? I, I don't know. But uh, they look pretty nice. Uh, McGee apparently thinks so too. Uh, she asks Molesley if he can tell their gardener about it. Molesley uh, is like, yeah, sure, as long as I don't have to talk to you assholes. Yeah. <laughs> actually, she says, uh, oh, so please tell Mr. Brockett, which I believe was a music hall song. <laughs> Tell Mr. Brockett the roses are fine, the roses are fine, the roses are fine. Tell Mr. Brockett the roses are fine and we'll all have a quaff of ale. Man, I hope there's a music hall revival because we've got a song ready to go. <laughs> the Dowager Countess is so offended that McGee likes those roses so much and she really can't seem to believe that Everyone, literally everyone thinks she's been getting the Grantham Cup because she's the Dowager Countess of Grantham. <laughs> yeah. Like, the cup named for you. You can't believe <laughs> that there's even the littlest, slightest whiff of nepotism here. Yeah. You know, I mean, she thinks she's getting it because she's rich and has hired the best gardener. You know, yeah. like she still thinks it's because of who she is. She just thinks it's still the best flower. Right, right. And, and even it turns out even uh, Robert, Lord Grantham, Thinks so. Mm-hmm. And uh, <laughs> mom is there being all plucky, like, I've been annoying Cousin Violet all week. <laughs> and I'm yes. like, God, did somebody put speed in your tea? Mm-hmm. She's just very, like, enthusiastic this episode. She is. Well, it's the flower show. It gets everybody excited. It's true. So then uh, Anne is talking to Mr. Bates, and she is disappointed that he did not plant the snuff box in either room. As are we all. Yeah. Like, come we're on, all. Mr. Bates. Yeah. Oh, they're at, at this point, they're all walking. They're walking to the flower show. Yes. We're all disappointed about that. And he says, oh, well, they know that I know, and that's enough. No, it isn't. No, he didn't you even were... say it's enough. He says it's something. I'm like, and no, that's it... something. Yeah, it's not anything. You were supposed to know that they know. Like... You've just opened them up to try to do it again Whereas if one of them had been caught, yeah. they either would have been fired or never, ever tried to get you fired again. Yeah. Like, the, 
They assumed that you knew from the beginning. Like it was only you were stupidity. Jesus is mad at this guy. <laughs> Jesus is up in heaven going, dude. I know I said to turn the other cheek, but for God's sake, <laughs> sometimes you got to throw over a table at the money lenders. <laughs> they make polite conversation about Mrs. Patmore, and he's like, "Oh, I hope they don't give her false hope, because false hope sucks to live with." Blah blah blah. Yeah. And Anna finally has enough of his vagaries and wants to know his <laughs> terrible secret. Uh, and it turns out he's married, plus some other crap that he is not telling her about at this time. Right. Yeah. Anna don't care. That's she right. She awesomely declares her love for him, although we don't understand it. <laughs> uh, and she says she knows it's not ladylike, but Mr. Bates says she is a lady. And, and, he, a, and a finer one he never knew. Yeah, but he's still not going to. Yeah, he's still not going to like tell her the whole truth or like love her back or anything. Right. And then, uh, conveniently, a hay cart drives up. Uh, presumably, the guy's been riding around delivering hay and looking for awkward situations to defuse. <laughs> um, yeah, and, and Mr. Bates is going to hitch a ride on that hay cart so as not to slow them down. And that was the end of Mr. Bates. Mm-hmm. Never seen again. <laughs> yes. <laughs> hay cart found in river. Valid at large. <laughs> Then at the flower show, Gwen informs uh, Lady Sybil that she did not get the job, and Gwen wants to give up. But Sybil refuses to give up. Yes. She won't. Even though it's not her life, she has, in the way of rich white people, (laughs) decided that it's in Gwen's best interest that Sybil tell Gwen what she wants. Yeah. Yeah. Gwen wants to give up, as she says, only a fool doesn't know when they've been beaten, which is clearly a lesson that she has learned from her parents. Yes. And we... In this episode, we learn definitively that Anna's parents, much better than Gwen's Yeah, parents. fight fire with fire, or a oh. fool doesn't know what he's been beaten. <laughs> right. Mary comes up to Matthew and uh, says she hopes he didn't think her rude last night, and then doesn't apologize or anything, just lets him know that she and Edith had this sort of bet. Yeah, I hope you don't think I was rude. It's just that you're a game to me. <laughs> <laughs> anyway, Matthew very savagely just cuts her off. Yeah. For some reason, her non-apology didn't make him feel any better. (laughs) And he says, you know, it's fine. He had a nice time at dinner, and he's glad they're on speaking terms. Now I have to go see to my mother. Yeah. Which Mary takes as a bit of a slap in the face. As as it was intended. Yes. Yes. So, one point Matthew Crawley. Yes. And then, of course, any time Mary gets rejected, we know that Edith will loom up from behind her. (laughs) And so she does. And she she, uh, remarks about, oh, uh, I guess... When he wanted you, you didn't want him, and now it's the other way around. It's rather funny. It is really funny. <laughs> it is. Edith is correct. Yeah. And uh, I mean, Edith won that round big time. So. Uh, yeah. And one you can tell, because Mary tries to strike back, but all she says is, if I ever wanted to attract a man, I would steer clear of those clothes and that hat, which is, number one, a low blow. Yeah. And two, not very effective, because the hat and the clothes are just as ugly as what everybody else is wearing. Yeah, everybody looks terrible. Everybody's wearing white to the flower show, and it's like, listen, people who avoid the sun as assiduously as all of you do, (laughs) do not ever need to wear white. Yeah. Maybe ivory, maybe cream. Not white. Yeah. Anyway, Mary, like, starts to stalk off. Edith <laughs> tries to, to retort back. And as soon as she does, Mary just sighs and leaves. Yeah. And so then uh, Edith catches O'Brien just creepily staring at her. Like some kind of vulture. Like, And uh, then Edith says to herself with her bitchiest bitch face back <laughs> on. Or maybe she just caught it from O'Brien. <laughs> I don't know. But she says, she who laughs last, laughs longest. <gasps> yeah. Then we cut back up front where uh, 
Lady Violet is uh, announcing the winners of the flower show. Mm-hmm. And uh, McGee asks, oh, uh, hey, Robert, did your snuff box ever turn up? And he says, yes. They just put it back on the wrong shelf. The ignorant bliss of the rich. <laughs> <sighs> so after all that kerfuffle, none of it mattered. Yes. And uh, then the Dowager Countess announces the Grantham Cup. Yes. And she has a very long pause. And, and we see on the card is written... The Dowager Countess of, of uh, Grantham. Mm-hmm. But she stops, she takes off her glasses, and she awards it to Mr. William Mosley. <laughs> <laughs> Everyone is so surprised! Yes. You can just see... Well, they're all silent for a moment, and then Mom leaps in and says, Bravo! Yes. Yes. <laughs> She's like, Sorry. <laughs> Spaced out for a minute. Yeah. Well, she's like, even I never thought that my nagging would work. Uh, anyway, everyone else is like, oh, wow, Granny learned a valuable lesson. That never happens. Yeah. Uh, Molesley goes up and, and, you know, he knows what's up. He's a savvy old codger. Yeah. He's like, thanks for letting me have it. And she's like, oh, I'm sure I don't know what you mean. But she <laughs> yeah. does say in a very cute move, you know, very well done. Yes. You know, and she, you can see that she's finally accepted yes. and internalized. Well, and she she wants to make it clear she she does a good job of making it clear to Mr. Molesley that he did earn it on merit. Yes. This wasn't just some sort of her being magnanimous. I uh-huh. mean, it was that, but that he well, shouldn't Well, and, just... and, you know, and that perhaps in the future things will be different. Yes. Yes. So then it is late at night in Downton Abbey, and Edith is writing a letter. <gasps> and then uh, she leaves the envelope lying out on her desk, uh, and it is for the Turkish ambassador. <gasps> dun, dun. Yes. Uh, Edith, Edith proving that she too can leave secret letters out in plain sight. Yes. Um, and that is the end of the episode. Yeah, kind of a lightweight episode. Yeah. I mean, to be fair though, because it was a lightweight episode, Edith did shine by comparison. That is true. She really had the most. To, she's had more to do in this episode than she has up till now. That's true. But it was. It wasn't my favorite episode. The whole snuffbox thing. Well, it's just so done. Yeah, it's like, it's so predictable, little inside thing that anybody who's read Night Watch by Terry Pratchett has the exact same plot line happen in that book. Like, it's just a very cliched thing that didn't surprise me at any point. Mm-hmm. Oh, I was surprised that Bates didn't take his opportunity for revenge. Well... Like a chump. <laughs> but Bates is Jesus, so... No, he's worse than Jesus. Right. <laughs> Bates, worse than Jesus. <laughs> All right. Anyway, presumably we'll be on to bigger and better things next week. Yes. But before that, we want to go ahead and give out our Abbey Awards. Hooray. The award for Gibson Girl in a startling upset. Yeah. Edith. Uh Uh-huh. Winning the Gibson Girl. In case anybody wanted to dispute me, I went and cataloged all of her outfits in this episode. Yes. Uh, The one that really struck me first Mm -hmm. was the lavender blouse and skirt she was wearing when she was talking to Daisy. But the whole Mm -hmm. thing is great. She wears this beautiful navy starburst blouse in the breakfast scene. Mm -hmm. Uh, She wears a very nice coral dress with a sort of a gold pattern inlay when O'Brien is persuading her to talk to Daisy. Mm -hmm. Uh, The pink dress that she wears for the dinner with Anthony Strallen is wonderful. Yeah. 
that was really nice. Really flattering on her. And even her nightdress has a very nice, you know, pattern on it, mm-hmm. despite being kind of shapeless and pointless yeah. as nightdresses are. Right. Um, no, and I can't tell if they made a deliberate choice to costume her better in this episode because she was more of the focus or if the costumer finally understood how to handle her coloring. Yeah. Because she's the only person on the show who is very blonde. Right, right. And, I mean... McGee and Mary and Sybil are all dark haired. Mm-hmm. You know, they pretty much just always make the Dowager Countess wear violet. Right. Uh, which is kind of annoying. It is. But uh, so, you know, whatever the reason, well done and congratulations to Edith on winning Gibson Girl. Yes. It is much like the Grantham Cup, well deserved. Yes, this time absolutely. Around. Now, on to best evasion of a question. Yes. Uh, and I think, uh, to me, the clear winner was Odd uh, Daisy. This time around. Fair enough. Uh, as we said, the smartest thing she ever said uh, regarding the biscuit jar. Mm-hmm. Well, because it's even more than an evasion. You know, she evaded the question and answered it at the same time. Yeah. No. And I mean, she, you know, could have gotten in trouble, but thanks to her skillful evasion, did not get in trouble. Uh, so really, well done, Daisy. Good job. Yes. Keep it up. <laughs> yes. And uh, finally, uh, best overbite goes to Sir Anthony Strallen. Oh, my goodness. He had a pronounced overbite. Well, how about that? Mm-hmm. Well done, sir. Yes. Excellent breeding, I'm sure. <laughs> yes. All right. And now to the big, the big enchilada. That's right. The Maggie Smith scale of Maggie Smith. I'm afraid to report... Yeah. Not a very good showing for Maggie Smith this episode. Really, I have to agree. really got upstaged by Penelope Wilton here. Yeah. Now, I will also say it's not entirely Maggie Smith's fault mm-hmm. because I think that the writing is a little bit weak. We've seen the Dowager Countess up to this point being a very, very adaptable, very savvy person. Yes, right. she's old and yes, she's kind of set in her ways. And, you know, I'm sure a little prideful. Yeah. But the fact that she could go for the entire episode without acknowledging what's going on, mm-hmm. because it doesn't strike me that she was ever, you know, putting on a front about it. Mm-hmm. I think she genuinely thought yeah. that she was winning on merit. Yeah, I got that impression. So too. I don't think she was well served, but uh, she did get in a couple nice lines. Yeah. Uh, she, she's very classy in the giving of the Grantham Cup to Mr. Molesley. Yes. And when McGee stupidly, like, tries to question her, she's like, all is well, my dear. Now, just let's never speak of this again. Yeah. The ending was good, and her line about how wonderful you are used to and, see. And the thing about, oh, I thought I was in for another telling off about the hospital. Yeah. So, so not, not a complete write-off. So, uh, but we can only give you a two. Yeah. Only yeah. a two. Yeah. Uh, it's, you know, those lines are the only thing separating it from a one, yeah. honestly. It just was true. not a good episode for the Dowager Countess. You know, I mean, let's not forget, still better than everything oh, else in the world. Yeah. But only a two on the scale of Maggie Smith. Indeed. All right. So that has been uh, episode five. Mm-hmm. And we will be back next week. Uh, we're almost finished with series one. We're yeah. really pulling into the home stretch here. So uh, things should be ramping up drama wise and Absolutely. hopefully jokes wise. <laughs> we'll see what we can do. <laughs> All right. Uh, well, thank you so much for listening. And until next time, up, up yours, yours downstairs. downstairs.